Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Again, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 27. Beginning in verse 15. Then it happened when Daniel had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulei, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the visions of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. In chapters 7 and 8, Daniel receives two separate visions at two separate times. The first vision in chapter 7, remember, included bizarre animals, a lion-like creature with wings in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, a bear-like beast with bloody ribs in verse 5, a leopard like an animal with four heads and great authority in verse 6, finally a ten-horned beast, dreadful, terrifying, a single horn grows out of its head. Three of the horns are literally ripped out by the roots. A little horn takes its place. The interpretation is given in chapter 7, verses 15 through 28. And of course, if you've missed any of these, you should go to the media room or go online and catch up. In these visions, Daniel sees the unfolding of the Gentile world powers. He sees their relationship to the plan that God has for Israel and Israel's unfolding future and the Jewish people. In chapter 8, Daniel receives a second vision. And in this second vision, it is the, the first vision is amplified and then explained in detail. It's going to focus on two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom, which is part of Israel's immediate future. And the question in chapter 8 in verse 13 was, how long will it take for Daniel's vision to be fulfilled? How long will the defiled Jewish temple 
take to be purified? How long will it take for the daily sacrifices to resume? And the answer was given in verse 14. Morning, evening, 2,300 days. Now the dialogue is extremely important. Daniel reports he heard a saint. That means a holy one. Uh, some sort of creature. By holy, it means set apart from sin and set away towards God. And, and it says this holy one, who is next referenced as that certain holy one or saint which spake, the Hebrew expression means the numberer of secrets or that wonderful numberer. That which this mysterious being was speaking isn't recorded by the prophet. It seems obvious that some comment about this desecration of the holy temple by the little horn is being spoken of in verses 11 and 12. Now, again, I want you to just pause for a moment and think about what we've read and what Daniel experienced. When Daniel receives the vision in chapter 7, and then later he receives the vision in chapter 8, the temple is in ruins. It was destroyed earlier by the armies of Babylon. The siege took place between 589 and 587 B.C. In other words, the temple that had been built by Solomon and ravaged by the Babylonian armies the temple itself was a wreck and a ruin. Daniel knows this. And so as he's thinking about this vision and he's thinking about what he understands and he thinks about what has happened, remember this loss of the temple for the Jewish people was unimaginable. There were two events in Jewish history that shook the Jewish people to their core. Number one was when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God, the power of God, and the presence of God. With the destruction of the temple came this idea, well, wait a minute. How will we experience God? How will our sins be forgiven? How is this even possible. And sometimes when we experience loss, when we find ourselves in circumstances that we never would have imagined, sometimes people think the unthinkable. That God really doesn't know what he's doing. That God can't manage. That he won't prevail. That he isn't strong enough. He, he can't cope or he doesn't care. And some people think of God as weak or absent or incapable. And then we remember. We remember the cross. We remember the theology of the cross. How is it possible that with loss can come gain? How is it even possible that with pain can come some sort of renewal? How is it possible that when things that we thought were important disappear from our lives, that God becomes ever more important? The Lord, we understand from the psalmist, is near to the brokenhearted. He is close to those who are crushed in spirit, it says in Psalm 34, 18. And so the temple of the Lord required ritual purity. Now again, there's this theme. We're the temple of the Lord. For Daniel, personal purity was a priority in his life. And again, I brought to your attention that as you read the book of Daniel and you see how it opens up with personal purity, that it's his personal purity that allows even for the possibility of prophecy. What does purity have to do with prophecy? It's going to be almost impossible for you to hear from God unless you're separated from sin and you're separated to the Lord. And so, again, 
the theme of purity is going to come up over and over again. And I'm going to remind you that this theme of purity precedes the prophecy, informs the prophecy, and gives us the ability to somewhat manage and understand the prophecy. So this section finds Daniel curious. He's not just simply curious about the meaning of everything that he has seen. He is curious about its meaning in light of everything that he knows. Just like you. You process the information based on what you know. We're not given a complete picture of the prophecy, but part of the meaning must include that God's in control of the future, that the Lord is present with us in suffering, and sometimes believers experience deep moments of pain and suffering and setback. We experience what I call trough periods. We're in the valley. We can no longer see the mountain. I want you, when you leave the church today, when you walk outside and you go to the parking lot and you look west, what do you see? You see the foothills. But you know what you can't see? You can't see the 14,000 foot peak just behind those foothills. Do you know why? Because we're in a depression in this place. Not a spiritual depression or a metaphorical depression. We're in an actual depression. We're in a valley right at this very moment. In order to get you to see the mountains that are just west of us, I would have to take all of you and we would have to drive east. And the further we drove east, all of a sudden the 14,000 peak foot peaks would begin to emerge and you would begin to see them and you would begin to see them and that's exactly what Daniel's prophecies are doing in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. From the peak you can see all the way back to creation and you can see all the way forward to the cross but sometimes when you're in the valley you can see neither. You have no idea where you came from. And you have no idea where you're going. And so part of my job is to take you by the metaphorical hand and lead you away from the trough and lead you away from the depression so that you can see what you couldn't see before. We're going to have to go up higher so that you can see further. And now we begin to understand, at least in part, the meaning of the prophecies. Look at verse 15. Then it happened, the angel's identity. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. The prophet finds himself either in person or in the spirit in the citadel of Shushan. That was the fortress in the province of Elam which is the future capital of Persia, the future home of Queen Esther in verse 2. He sees the vision that we've talked about in verses 3 through 14. How was Daniel seeking the meaning? Look at the text again. I, Daniel, saw the vision. Look what it says. I was seeking the meaning. How do you suppose he was doing that? How do you do it? How do you seek understanding when you're confused or unclear about what it is that you see? Hopefully, you engage your brain. You begin to think. You're thinking about things. But if you're smart, not only will you think about things, you'll begin to pray about things. You don't necessarily have to fold your hands or close your eyes. But you begin to pray and you go, Lord, what does this mean? What does this mean? How can I understand what it is that I am seeing? I'm going to suggest to you that this is exactly what Daniel does. And make no mistake about it. Daniel is smart. He's way smarter than me. A lot smarter. And he prays. And he's thinking. And as he's praying and thinking, 
a being appears. The being looks like a human being. Only later do we discover that it's an angelic being. In verse 16, it says, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulei. This is a canal. This is a man-made ditch that was dug in that area in order to provide water to those people. The image is that he hears a voice coming from between the banks. I want you to understand that in the Hebrew language, the picture is that he hears like a speaker coming from between the banks as if the voice is hovering on the not on the surface of the water, but above the water. In other words, this is a celestial being who is speaking. And it gives us the idea that it is a celestial being. And then we are given the angel's name, Gabriel. We're also given the angel's task. Make this man understand the vision. And Gabriel's name is very, very interesting. Different people have interpreted it in different ways, but the Hebrew seems to indicate in its most fundamental meaning the man who looks like God, Gabriel. We're given the mention of his name, and this is the first mention, not just of Gabriel by name, but it's the first mention of an angelic being with a given name. He seems to stand with Michael in some sort of special relationship to Israel. In the Bible, angels often appear, they look like human beings. The writer of Hebrews appeals to this very notion in Hebrews chapter 13, verse two, when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I don't know if you've ever met someone and you thought, I wonder if God sent this person into my life. I wonder if he or she is a supernatural creature. I wonder if God has sent them here to test me. I've had it happen a couple of times in my life where all of a sudden a person showed up and they needed something. And for whatever reason, in my mind, I'm thinking, what if it's an angel and God's going to judge me and test me based on how I treat this person? And the moment I did that, I just said, tell me what it is that you want or that you need. Oh, I need a ride to go to this particular place or that particular place. Or I need money to get from this place to that place. And rather than give them money, I would just say, get in my car, we're going to go. Well, it's an hour away. I don't care. Just think of me as a supernatural Uber. <laughs> we're going to drive. In verse 17, it says, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, again, when we see that expression, the time of the end, immediately our thoughts are the end of human history. Is that the meaning here? It might be. What's the context? The context seems to be the meaning of what's going to happen to Israel. The time of the end. Is it the time of the end of the Israeli captivity? Or is it a future, more distant time of the end? In verse 18, it says, Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. So now we have another clue. It is an end. It seems to be an end of this indignation, whatever that is. And then the angel says, for at the appointed time, that means the time that has been set aside. There is a time that has been specifically set aside for the time of the appointed time, the end shall be. So again, we ask the text a question, who came near? In the passage, there are three characters. 
there's Daniel, there's Gabriel, and there's this voice, an unidentified voice. I'm convinced that this voice that Daniel heard is Israel's Messiah. This is the Messiah that's been promised to Israel. This is the voice that speaks with the authority of God. I think the reason why I draw that conclusion is because human beings never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever boss around divine beings. Human beings do not boss around divine beings. If you are a person who tells angels what to do, you're sorely mistaken. Angels don't answer to you. They answer to God. Angels do what God asks them to do, which leads me to believe since divine beings receive their instructions from God, then whoever this voice is almost certainly is the voice of God. The, the voice that he hears is the voice of the Lord. And the angel's tasked with helping Daniel understand the vision in verses 16 and 17. It's repeated for emphasis. I heard the man's voice who called. Look what it says. Gabriel, make this man understand. And then in verse 17, the first word out of his mouth, understand. Think about it. God said, make him understand. And the angel goes, I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. I'm going to help you understand. And so that's what he's tasked with. And that's what he does. And so, this same Gabriel will later return and reprise his role as the one who gives revelation to the people that, that's been tasked by God. Later, Gabriel will appear to Zechariah and receive and reveal the birth of John the Baptist to his mom and dad in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Gabriel will then appear to a young virgin named Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. So this is one of the reasons why we know that we are on a mountain peak. There is a valley that they're in. But there's peaks in Jewish history that began with creation and continued with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that continued with the sojourn into Egypt and Moses and the release of the Jewish people, the giving of the law, the establishment of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom, the destruction of the temple, the isolation of the Jewish people. And what is the first thing that Daniel is tasked in his understanding of the vision. What's number one on the angel's list? It's the timing. Look what it says in verse 17. The vision refers to the time of the end. This vision seems to reference minimum one of two things. Number one, the end if the context means anything, the end of the two kingdoms with a particular emphasis on the end of Greek power and hegemony over Israel, there are the Medes and the Persians who will expand their empire. They will go north, south, east, and west. They will create a kingdom that will last for hundreds of years. A Greek kingdom will then emerge, and it also will last over a great period of time. But then Greek power and control will begin to disintegrate. But there seems to be another end that the circumstances of history do not completely explain. A far future end. 
The vision seems to push past the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and even the Roman Empire. The vision extends to that, I'm going to suggest to you, final time when God's dealings with Israel and the nations will come to a final consummation. Is it possible that this vision gives us clues about Israel's immediate future and Israel's far future? I think so. Paul and James and Peter and Jude all make reference to this interesting expression, the time of the end. Paul speaks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and then again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. James speaks about it in James chapter 5, verse 3. Peter speaks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Jude talks about it in Jude 18. That's 1 18. There's only a single chapter. So Paul, James, Peter, and Jude speak about it. I don't have time to go over each and every one of those passages of scripture, but I want to bring it to your attention for those of you who love this kind of stuff and want to dive a little bit deeper. Just in brief, Paul speaks of a time of satanic deception where some depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He describes a time when truth is under assault. Consciences are seared. Marriage is under attack. The apostasy is described in terms of gross self-love, lovers of money, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unloving, unforgiving, without self-control, brutal people who despise what is good, people who love pleasure rather than love God. James adds... People heaping up treasures, but refuse to value what has eternal and lasting value. Peter describes this generation as marked by extreme skepticism, bitter cynicism. He calls them scoffers who walk according to their own desires, meaning passion or lust. And what's the target of their ridicule? The target of the ridicule in this final generation is, where is he? Where's Jesus? He came one time, but I doubt that he's going to ever come again. Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. This generation affirms a beginning, but even denies a creation. Have we even pushed further than a generation that says, look, I'm willing to concede that maybe there was a creation. But on the revelation of the Bible's peaks, you look back and you see the mountain called creation and then the fall. You look forward to another mountain, and that's the promise of the coming of Christ. And then you look into the far future, and you see Jesus coming again. Now, again, this has prompted many Bible scholars and teachers to conclude that the prophecy has a dual fulfillment. Some people like John Walvoord and other people um, look at this passage. They see a near and a far fulfillment near as it pertains to Antiochus Epiphanes, the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire, who I've talked about in the past, and I'll talk about presently in just a moment, but also to a future Antichrist creature who exists in the last day. Others insist that the prophetic passage has a singular prophetic meaning. Whether it does or whether it doesn't, we're left with the impression that Daniel is weak as a result of this supernatural encounter. The angel touches him and strengthens him in verse 18. 
This should remind us again of one of the many ministries of angelic creatures and angelic beings. It's to provide comfort and strength in time of severe testing and catastrophic weakness. In Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 promises that God's angels will bear you up. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane struggles under the enormous pressure that he's going to bear the sin of the world. He prays to the Father. He prays once and then he prays again and then he prays a third time. And according to the Bible, an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened him in Luke chapter 22 verse 43. So whether we believe in a singular meaning of this or a dual meaning, what we can definitely take away from the passage is that there are supernatural beings, that they reveal secrets, and they provide strength to people who are in desperate circumstances. And look, look what it says, the angel speaks. Daniel tells us he's in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. Sometimes I feel like the people that I'm talking to are in a deep sleep with their faces to the ground. They go, what? What? It's time to wake up. Gino has something important to say. I'm hoping it's important. He touches him. He stands him upright. The angel says, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time. And again, we're given a clue. The end of the indignation. The challenge that we have is, are there two indignations? For some of you are going, what in the world is an indignation? I'm going to suggest to you, that I think it's a reference to the blasphemy that takes place as the temple is defiled. That's the indignation. Now, this is interesting because remember, when Daniel receives this vision, there is no temple. All there is is there's a ruined temple. When Jesus repeats an indignation that will take place in Daniel chapter 24, he isn't referring to an indignation that takes place in the past. He refers to an indignation that takes place in the future. At the appointed time, it says. The end shall be, verse 19. And if the indignation is a reference to the defilement of the temple and then the future restoration of the temple, we have to ask and answer the question, is there a historical reference that takes place at the end of a Greek empire where a Greek king arrives on the scene and punishes and persecutes the Jewish people and defiles their temple, which ultimately results in a cleansing of the temple? The answer is yes. It's Antiochus Epiphanes, and the events are recorded in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and it takes place over a period of 2,300 days. Sounds pretty stinking accurate to me. So whenever and whatever this is, we learn a couple of things, that it's according to God's divine plan, that it's going to happen. It's telling us something about the sovereignty of God. It's telling us something about what God wants Daniel to know about the reconstruction and the possible persecution and then the subsequent cleansing of the temple. The angel's information is given to us in verses 20 through 22. The ram which you saw, the angel tells us, having the two horns, they are the kings, plural, of Media and Persia. So the horns are the Medes and the Persian. The singular ram is probably a reference to Cyrus, who is spoken of in the Bible as God's servant. So we know that this ram in the vision that's given earlier in the text are the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And he tells us flat out in verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. 
the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. In what sense? There was a king of Macedon named Philip. Philip had a father and his father had a father. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great is in technically in history Alexander the Fourth. So what in the world and why in the world does the angel say the male goat is Greece, because it is, the large horn that's between the eyes is the first king. In what, in what sense? The first king that matters in relationship to what? The people of Israel. Why does this king matter? Because Alexander the Great will cross the Hellespont he will subdue that northern part of Anatolia. He will march down to Tyre and Sidon, where he will lay siege to the city for 18 months. He will send word to Jerusalem to send him reinforcements, and they will decline, and he will get angry. And the more angry he gets, he purposes in his heart that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. And as he's anticipating after he's captured Tyre, and he marches towards Jerusalem, the high priest of Jerusalem comes out with the scroll of Daniel, opens it up to this eighth chapter, and then points to this verse and says, Alexander, this is about you. And Alexander reads it, and he's astonished, and he spares the city. He makes it possible for the Jewish people who want to go with him to go to Egypt and capture that and the ones who want to go with him to go to the eastern part of the empire and they do and then they go back to Babylon where he dies of pneumonia complicated by drinking in verse 22 it says as for the broken horn this is his sudden death he says, the large horn that is between eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. In other words, it won't have the same strength, the same authority, and the same reach. But this gives us clues. Did God have a plan and a purpose for allowing the Greeks to take over that part of the world? That Greek culture and Greek language would become the thing in the Middle East to prepare for the coming of the Messiah? We do know again from history that, as I already relayed to you, that the four generals are called the Diadochi. In history, that's a term that means the successors. The four generals, Cassander, occupies Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, Thrace, Asia Minor, parts of Lydia, Phrygia, and Bithynia, Seleucus, Syria, Babylonia, the Euphrates to the Indus River, and from time to time, the little land bridge that connects, that's Lebanon and what later would be called Palestine, but which we refer to as Israel that connects the two continents. It would go back and forth between the Seleucid emperors and the Ptolemaic emperors to the south, which is Egypt, Cyrene, the Levant, which is the land bridge. Chapter 11 is going to deal in detail with the king of the north, Syria, the king of the south, Egypt. These two ambitious kingdoms are going to be constantly fighting for control of this little strip of land. Why? Why? Because God has revealed that in this little strip of land, the fate of the world is going to take place. Something is going to happen in that place that's going to change everyone forever. And that's part of the message of the Bible. Part of the message of the Bible is God has known all along that he's going to save people. And see, now again, remember the valleys and the peaks that I've already told you about? Sometimes when you find yourself in the valley of despair, it makes good sense to go back to the peak of creation. You see the fall. You're given the promise. 
you understand the coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so we see the angel's revelation. Look what it says. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce countenance or fierce features who understands sinister schemes. That word is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language, which means riddles, things that are difficult to understand. Some of you have heard of the expression, why that's a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. What does that mean? It means exactly that, that it's hard to discern the meaning. It was seen as an attribute of leadership to be able to understand things that are difficult to understand and untie the knot. So you have two kinds of leaders. Leaders who make it their ambition to untie the knot. The story is told that when Alexander came across the Hellespont, there was a, a knot called the Gordian knot, and that whoever, whoever untied this knot would be the ruler of the world, and people had tried, just like Arthur and Excalibur and the sword and the stone to remove this, the, this sword from the stone. And people tried, generation after generation, to untie the knot. Alexander shows up, he takes his sword and he slices the knot in half and it completely unravels. Sometimes people do things subtly and sometimes people do things a little less subtle. In verses 23 through 25, Gabriel gives the interpretation and the explanation of all of the verses from 9 to 14, the little horn, remember, is the main character in the vision, this king of fierce countenance that could be translated bold. It could also be translated shameless. It's the same word that's used to describe in the book of Proverbs, the young man who is seduced by the woman. She has bold, shameless features. She is unconcerned about the consequences of her behavior. And that's the idea. This person is center stage. And so in the interpretation, it makes perfect sense that they, they have to be the same person or that they're somehow related to the same situation. The abomination, which makes desolate. The indignation. And who are the transgressors? In the broadest terms possible, it means anyone and everyone who resists and rebels against God and his plans. In a more narrow sense, it probably means the kings in the visions and then the subsequent closing or the termination of those kingdoms. In other words, I'm going to suggest to you it means the kings of Media and Persia and the kings of Greece, and then the subsequent breaking up of the kingdom into four parts, the emergence of Seleucid, and then the eighth person in that dynastic reign, Antiochus Epiphanes, shows up, and he hates the Jews. He hates them. He hates Jews, and he hates Judaism. And he wants to make them suffer. There's a little, well, it may be known to you, it's, a, it's a, just a fact of history that, that Antiochus Epiphanes will go to Egypt because he, he wants to ultimately defeat Ptolemy and Ptolemy's <laughs> armies are reinforced by the people of Rome. And because they're reinforced by Rome, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is unable to secure that kingdom and in rage and fury he decides he's going to pick on somebody that he can defeat, the Jewish people. He slaughters 100,000 people and enslaves 50,000 more and makes Zeus worship prevalent in Jerusalem. He sacrifices a pig on the holy altar and completely defiles the temple. It lasts 2,300 days. The, the Judas Maccabeus rises up, defeats Antiochus Epiphanes, goes in 
restores the temple, cleanses the temple. And so the Jews to this very day celebrate Hanukkah and the restoration of the temple. So, when it says that the transgressors have reached their limit, this reminds us that when a person or a nation reaches the limit, God takes action. In Genesis 15, 16, the Lord says he wouldn't judge the Amorites immediately. It says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 1 Peter 3.20 reveals that the global flood of the wicked, these people who did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, that's what Peter says, God's wisdom is infinite. God's power is infinite. God's knowledge is infinite. God's patience is not infinite. That should startle you. You should be surprised. You mean there's an end? There comes a moment when God is fed up with people and places and nations Apparently, the answer is yes. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, we even read the words of Jesus. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. For many of you, God has been very, very patient. He's been very, very patient. He's waited for you to turn from your sin and to turn to the Savior. He has waited patiently, and he continues to wait patiently. But there is a time. There's a time when judgment comes. And so, some scholars maintain that this description given by Gabriel concerns Antiochus, epiphanies of history from one, about 168 B.C., the description is of a blasphemous, despicable, egotistical, ruthless leader who neither fears God or man. Uh, it's, a, it's a description of a person who will use any and all means, diplomacy, deceit, trickery, misdirection. He'll do whatever it takes, war, to destroy opposition, and most certainly Jewish opposition. And so the interpretation and the revelation given by the angel Gabriel is a reference to Daniel's vision of verses 9 through 14. The big question is, is this a reference to the immediate future of Antiochus in our past or to an Antichrist in the sometime future? Remember what I told you, there's an Antichrist in chapter 7, who grows out of, a, out of a revived Roman Empire. This little horn comes out of the Greek Empire in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. But I think that there's a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 28 which gives us a clue. In Ezekiel 28, it describes the prince of Tyre. He's proud. He's rich. He's impressed with his own wisdom. He's consumed with his own ambition. The prince of Tyre imagines himself a god, immortal, worthy of divine adoration and ambition. The prince of Tyre imagines himself some sort of supernatural creature. This is a human. He's the visible ruler of Tyre. But then we see the lamentation in the middle of the chapter between verses 12 and 19, which couldn't possibly apply to any human being. He is Satan, the anointed cherub, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty until iniquity was found in the creature. What do these two passages that begin with a human and end with a satanic creature have in common with our passage? I'm going to suggest to you that there's the strong possibility that the description that is given to us in the passage is yet another description of this far future antichrist, this malevolent being, because in Ezekiel 28, no doubt the prince of Tyre is energized and formed by this malevolent being who seems to literally possess this person. Is it possible 
that Satan has set aside people in every generation as he tries to hinder, pose, thwart the plans of God. In the book of Ephesians, it re it's a reference to the principalities and the, and the rulers of powers and darkness. In another passage, he's called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And so we discover that Satan inspires, informs, and empowers beings. And he inspires, informs, and empowers this little horn to resist and rebel and then reduce God's people to ashes. So the latter time of their kingdom has been interpreted in, in a number of different ways. The first and most obvious is the closing moments of Greece's control of the glorious land. In that vision, Daniel sees the king arise. Daniel gets a glimpse of his face and a glimpse of his heart. In history, Antiochus Epiphanes almost universally fits the bill of this description of deceit and guile. And the description is breathtaking in its depth and scope. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. How is that? Apparently he's energized by a supernatural being. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. In what way will his power be mighty? What's the source of his power? Again, we're repeatedly told in the scriptures that God is sovereign over the world. He controls civilization. He controls nations, leaders, kings, and kingdoms. Psalm 113 verse 4, the Lord is high above the nations. Psalm 22, 28, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Job 12, 23, he makes nations great. He destroys them. He enlarges them. He leads them away. And I think what that means is he leads them away to judgment and captivity from time to time. Jehoshaphat says, in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So which is it? Is it God or is it Satan? There seems to be an element of both. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God allow the likes of Antiochus to come and hurt people and persecute people and destroy people and make them suffer? Why would he allow Hitler to do the same thing? Why would he allow Pol Pot to do the same thing? Why would he allow Stalin to kill tens of millions of his own people? Why does he allow the evil dictator of North Korea to punish his own people and grind them into the dirt? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 73.3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They set their mouth against the heavens. If we just read that, we would be misled because that's not the end of the story. Temporary might, temporary persecution, temporary prosperity, temporary success isn't the end of the story. The wicked shall fall in the end. That's what Psalm 73, 18 and 19 says. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The king of Tyre, swept away. Antiochus Epiphanes, he is going to die diseased. Herod, he is going to die Herod Agrippa, he is going to die. This future antichrist creature, he is going to be bound. And he, along with the false prophet and the beast that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, are the first occupants of hell hotel. It doesn't make your suffering go away. Though. It doesn't make your pain go away. And even for Daniel, the temple is still destroyed. And even for Daniel, he knows that God has a plan and a purpose for his people, but how will it unfold? How will it unfold? 
the same God who allows the rise of power and the exercise of that power confronts them, eventually destroys them. In verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He, he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Like the prince of Tyre, this is not what seems to have happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. Some people will argue, well, yes, he rose against the high priest of Jerusalem, but he shall be broken without human means. Yes, that Antichrist is broken, not through war, but through illness. But a profile begins to emerge. Antiochus and the future Antichrist exercise cunning. There's a dark side of prudence and wisdom. They both seem to be evil genius. And so when a person says to me, I think so-and-so is the Antichrist, I say to them, no, I don't think that person's smart enough to be the Antichrist. According to the Bible, the Antichrist is an evil genius. The, the future Antichrist has unbelievable oratorical skills. This one can manipulate people at a moment's notice. His success means the failure for many. He sees himself as great. I already told you that on the coins of Antiochus are written Theos, Epiphanes, God manifest, or the one who represents God on the earth. Both Antiochus and the future Antichrist hate the Jews. They hate Jerusalem. They hate God's plans and purposes. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. What does that mean? Remember, he's doing this in the 5th century B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes is going to appear on the scene from 171 BC to 165 BC. The temple will be rededicated in 164 BC by Judas Maccabeus. Does that mean that because this event is still in the far future that Daniel is supposed to pay no attention? Some Bible teachers believe that Antiochus Epiphanes is again the type and the shadow of this far future Antichrist. What is a biblical type? A type is an Old Testament institution, event, person, object, ceremony, that reality and purpose in biblical history, but also by divine design foreshadows something that is yet to be revealed. So what does it mean to seal up the vision? It could be that Daniel's instructed not to disclose the vision until after Belshazzar's reign ends because he could be accused of treason or insurrection. Others believe it means put it away for safekeeping for future generations. Some believe that it means keep the vision confidential for now because it pertains to the distant future. It doesn't have relevance for now. Other people think it just means conclude the vision. The result, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Here's what I'm thinking. When he says no one understood it, he must have told someone. I wonder if he told his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hey, I had this crazy vision. What do you think? I have no idea. For Daniel, part of the vision was explained. Part of it remained unexplained. Daniel is astonished by it. Again, I would encourage you to reread Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus gives a sneak peek of the future to his disciples. And he talks in verse 15 about this indignation that takes place in the time of Daniel. He says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not take anything from the house. Here's what we know. There's going to be pain and suffering for the Jews. 
in the near future, in a further future, and then in the farthest future. And when you combine the information from Daniel and the other biblical references describing the future that unfolds, that's what we're going to talk about in the rest of our study of the book of Daniel. I'm going to drag you to the top of the prophetic mountain. And then we're going to go back into the valley. And sometimes in those valleys, you're going to experience pain and suffering, disappointment, and even confusion. And then I'm going to invite you to come out of the valley and for us to go up higher so that we can see clearer about what the future holds. Isn't this interesting? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much. So many verses, Lord, in so little time. So much to say. Lord, I pray that you will help me say it with clarity. That whatever else this means, you're in charge of the future. Whatever else it means that you have a plan and a purpose. Whatever else it means that the same Jesus who has come will come again. Whatever it means, it must mean that if we are in a difficult place, that one day we're going to be taken out of that place. And we're going to have our feet set on a rock. And we are going to be able to rejoice with the saints concerning the revelation that there is a God in heaven who's in charge of the past and the present and the future. In Jesus' name, amen.